The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Rashma Kapadia, Associate Editor at Barron's. Welcome to Managing Your Money, How to Position Portfolios for 2023. Today with me is Sarah Malik, Chief Investment Officer of Nuveen, who also manages a multi-billion dollar global portfolio. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Rashma. It's great to be here. So this is a topic of intense interest amongst our readers, and I thought we would build on our last level of up event on managing portfolios through turbulence with a conversation with you and getting a sort of a sneak peek at your outlook, which I think you're working on for next year. Um, so let's start a little bit with, um, you know, the fact that this has been a very difficult 2022. When you're thinking about next year, does it get easier? You know, I think we just move on to new challenges in 2023. So I, I call this peaks to valleys in the sense that Inflation has peaked, which is the good news, and, but we're still going through valleys in another peak, and the peak next year will be dealing with uh, the, a recession, and what does that mean for the economy? And what we're looking to do is how do you position your portfolios to be re- recession resilient? Um, you know, I think there's a few interesting ways to do that. Uh, before we get into that, though, you know, let's talk about what are the key things that we're worried about in 2023. There's three of those. The first is the Federal Reserve. And what do they plan to do in terms of continued interest rate hikes, perhaps a pause? And will they get to a pivot where they start to cut rate hikes? Second is the recession. Does that mean for consensus earnings estimates to the S&P 500? Our view is that we think consensus earnings estimates are still too high for next year. That's a headwind. Mm -hmm. And three, of course, is inflation. Even though it has recently peaked, what is going to be that downward slope? And what does that look like? Our view, again, is that inflation remains fairly sticky. So it's going to take a while for inflation to get to the Federal Reserve's stated target of 2%. Got it. So now let's 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 take each one of those. So let's talk about the Fed, which I think the stock and bond market both have been at the mercy of the Fed this year. Um, we've had some Fed governors speaking. What is sort of the outlook? Are, are we seeing any sort of changes in their positioning? What are you looking for in terms of messaging from the Fed? Our core message from the Fed that we think interest rates will stay higher for longer. Now, just coming into this week, we've heard from a trio of Fed presidents and what regional presidents, and what they've been saying is relatively hawkish. And what I mean by that is they are talking about continued increases in interest rates in order to battle inflation, which remains quite sticky. This is going to culminate tomorrow when the chairman of the Fed, Jay Powell, speaks. And I think he'll stay the course. His message has been pretty consistent that they will continue to raise interest rates until the job is done. And that job is lowering inflation to their target of about 2%. So what do we see going forward for them? The next Federal Reserve meeting where they'll do a rate hike is this month. We think they'll raise interest rates by 50% this month. And that's going to be lower than the last time, which was 75 basis points. And that's because we have seen inflation peak. But they're going to continue at this slower pace of rate hikes for a while going into 2023. And all of this tightening together is most likely going to lead to a recession in the market. Um, Because 
because you know with the higher interest rates, it's tougher for corporations to borrow money. Uh, it's bringing up consumers' mortgage rates gives us less money to spend. All of that should culminate in some kind of recession. Our view is that it will be a mild one, and that the Fed will eventually stop raising rates when we finally see significantly lower inflation or a drop in employment, manufacturing data, and when those 2023 earnings estimates finally come down. So it, it does sound like we could see a good deal of economic pain still ahead until we get to that level where the Fed feels like it can pause, right? Are you? I mean, it doesn't sound like you're actually thinking about a pivot necessarily with the Fed cutting rates next year, are you? We're not. So we don't see a pivot, but the recipe for a pivot to take place would be a recession that finally comes into place. And, and by definition, that would probably lower inflation enough where you may see a pivot. That does not, in our book, play out for 2023, at least not in the first half of 2023. Our likely scenario is interest rates continue to increase through the first quarter. Then perhaps the Fed pauses and waits to see what happens to the economy. And then eventually, if we do hit a, a fairly uh, deep recession, then the Fed will eventually have to pivot and cut rates. That, that whole scenario needs to play out. Um, you know, our concern with the S&P 500 is it's had quite a rally coming into this week as people were uh, excited about inflation hitting its peak and some of the reopening that we're seeing in China. Um, you know, I think that's a little bit overly optimistic at this point in terms of the level of the S&P and that we're going to be more like in a trading range on the S&P as we work through the possibility of a recession and continued interest rate hikes. So, okay, that takes you to China, which as you know, I cover constantly. So let's just talk about that for, for a second. So, you know, we saw these um, protests, protests that we haven't seen in, in years in, in China, widespread on a common topic, which was frustration over COVID. And we've seen um, the government take more steps to sort of at least signal an end to this harsh um, COVID restriction policy that they've had in place. What, how does that filter through to the global market and into portfolios? Does that mean that perhaps people should be looking more closely at owning international or Chinese stocks even? China is very important to the global economy and to non-U.S. markets. Within emerging markets, it is the largest piece of the emerging markets benchmark. So it is the anchor uh, country and region in the benchmark. Uh, it is the second big story of this week. The first big story, as I mentioned, was the trio of Fed speakers and Jay Powell tomorrow. The second has been the, the you know, starts and stops of the reopening and moving past zero COVID uh, lockdowns. Uh, you know, China's made uh, has been speaking a lot about reopening. We're seeing that happen in fits and starts. Um, it sounds like they're trying to move towards that, which I think is you know good for for the world and good for for their society. Um, but I think that the rally of uh, the Chinese markets that we saw coming into this was likely a little bit overly optimistic because I don't think the reopening uh, in any region of the world has been has been smooth. Um, so we're still concerned about China. I think you know the economy in general has suffered quite a bit because of their lockdowns. Um, so we need to see more economic growth coming out of China as they reopen. And then another concern to think about is the inflationary impact of China reopening. Yeah. We're dealing with inflation that's at almost 8% with China locked down. As China reopens, what does that mean for inflation? And if it's inflationary, that means we may even have a longer tail for those higher for longer interest rate increases by the Fed. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think in China, there's a public health situation too, in terms of vaccinations having to get um, get up there for, for the elderly before there's really a reopening. Um, so just speaking about that impact on, in, on inflation, um, there are a lot of questions that we've gotten from the audience about energy. And I think one of the places that we could see that um, sort of increase in inflationary pressures could be coming from the energy um, side of things. 
what are your thoughts there? You know, energy has been, um, you know, a sector that we think we, we talk about it a lot. And we came in with our um, Darren's Outlook um, panel coming into 2022 with energy was my number one sector for 2023. Uh, there's, there's some significant uh, issues in the industry that are causing oil prices to remain high. Uh, first is supply. Supply for energy producers is quite low. So supply of oil remains low. Um, even when we hear about OPEC, OPEC perhaps putting more supply in the markets or the, or the USA opening up its reserves, it's still barely enough to make a dent in the tight supply situation. Second component for the energy sector is demand. Demand has been recovering and moving towards pre-COVID levels, um, but it's still not there yet because one of the big components of energy demand is non-US markets and emerging markets. And with China closed again, you know, that does reduce demand for, for energy. So there's going to be increased demand for oil going forward. And third is what are the producers doing? In past tight energy cycles, they tended to invest very heavily in pulling more barrels of oil out of the ground. This time around, they're focusing more on returning cash to shareholders. That's good for shareholders, but it's also tough then for the, for the energy cycle and the oil cycle to loosen up. So we see a continued tight energy cycle. There will be movement in oil prices as you see headlines on what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and other things. But generally, we think oil prices continue overall to move up and to the right over time. Again, that is inflationary. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I want to remind the audience to submit questions in the Q&A section, and I'm going to try to get to as many as I can um, through this conversation. So, Sarah, I want to sort of switch you back to the you, you laid out sort of the backdrop for 2023 and talked about resilience. So what are the types of companies that are resilient in this environment? What should people want to own in their portfolios? You know, both types of companies and then a couple actual stocks that you think um, perhaps illustrate that. Sure, so I think that is the key for 2023. How do you position your portfolio to be recession resilient? Um, you know, it's, I think that, you know, just when it comes to market timing, it's very challenging to time the markets and move in and out of cash and back into the markets because markets can be so volatile. You usually miss the points where you should get in and out. So our view is you position your portfolio correctly in those sectors and strategies, which can be re recession resilient. There's, there's a few areas where we see that. First of all, uh, within equities, two areas that are very interesting are infrastructure. So within the public infrastructure space, the segments of that tend to be more resi resilient to recessions. And these are areas such as midstream pipelines within the energy industry, utilities also. And then um, those are two areas that tend to be very recession resilient and also waste management within the infrastructure space is also uh, it, the demand stays very stable. So that's one area that we like within equities. Second area is dividend growers. These are companies that have consistently raised the dividend that they pay over time. They're not to be confused with bond proxy companies that kind of are like consumer staples that look pretty expensive. Dividend growers look cheap to us. And what we love about them is they provide some income to your portfolio. They tend to be less volatile than the market. And these companies are very strong balance sheets. And that's why they're recession resilient. They have strong balance sheets, strong cash flow, and that's why they continue to grow their dividend over time. So that's what we like within equities. Yeah. Can you give me an example? Can you give, is there a oh, stock sure. example of, of a, a good, strong dividend grower that's attractive? Yeah, so um, yeah, I'll, I'll give um, there's one called Linda, which is an industrial gas company. Um, we love industrial gas businesses because they're fairly economically defensive. Um, it's a company that tends last quarter beat and raised on the quarter. They give out conservative guidance. 
Uh, it's also clean energy, clean energy play. It's, that's one of the next phases of growth for them. And it pays about a one and a half dividend yield. Finally, also, it has energy pass-throughs written into its, con into its contracts. Um, I can give you a couple others in the semiconductor space. Broadcom sure. pays a 3% dividend. Um, happy to do a deeper dive into that if you're interested. And finally, Motorola Solutions may not be a company that people are very aware of. It makes mission-critical products for public safety. It pays a little bit over a 1% dividend yield and has grown its dividend 11% over the past five years. So I will ask you about Broadcom. So there is obviously a lot of sort of questions about the semiconductor cycle and what's going on there. I mean, how are you guys thinking about that? So if you look at the semiconductor cycle historically, uh, a typical downturn lasts about six to nine months. Uh, we're in the later innings of that. Um, and we think that fundamentals bottom for semiconductors in the first half of 2023. So we're about getting to the time where we think the cycle hits an inflection point, the negative news is priced into these stocks, and they're due for a rebound. Um, Long-term drivers for semiconductors remain you know, what they've been for a while across you know, from device growth to artificial intelligence to data centers. The reason we like Broadcom is because it has both an offensive and defensive mix of business. Offensive is its semiconductor business. Defensive is the fact that it also is in the software space, which we find to be a very resilient part of the of business because it has strong backlogs. And so you have revenue visibility going forward. For example, 80% of Broadcom's revenue for 2023 is already in backlog. And they have a very high quality management team who knows how to manage that backlog. So it lowers the risk of cancellation. And so all of that is why within the semiconductor space, which we say as an industry should be hitting an inflection point in the very near future, Broadcom is the company that we think you would want to play going forward. So let me just ask you, um, when you think about your portfolio, how is it different? I mean, is, is it considerably different for the next year than this past year, which was also sort of bumpy um, and volatile? I mean, are you looking to own different types of companies for, for what you see ahead? A little bit in the sense that I would say, if you had asked me at the end of last year, what is the number one thing I'm looking for in companies that I invest in? I would have said pricing power. Mm -hmm. I would have said these are companies that need to have the pricing power to overcome inflation. Now with inflation starting to moderate, I'm not as worried about pricing power because there's going to be a lot of companies like actually in the material space where they've taken the price up already, but their costs went up so quickly that they, they still had a negative margin impact from it. But now in 2023, they're going to see the benefit of that. Mm -hmm. So 2023 for me is not so much about pricing power as much as resiliency of your business. How, how much will it be impacted by a recession? So that's why I was mentioning areas like waste management, um, other areas, utilities, areas that tend to not be as recession uh, 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 impacted as other areas of the market. Yeah, and then, of course, dividend growers, other areas that are resilient as you go through a recession. You just want to, you want to own companies that not only can survive the recession, but have businesses that thrive and even grow during it. That's great. Okay, so let's talk about bonds, which have obviously had a um, disconcertingly difficult year. Um, you know, what are your thoughts there? I, I know Robert, for example, is ask, asking how um, you see long bonds performing in 2023. What should people think about when they're thinking about their bond portfolio going into next year? Sure, and, and even though we mentioned, even though I'm chief investment officer for all of Nuveen, one of the hats I wear is as an equity portfolio manager, but I have to admit, I think bonds are more attractive than equities for 2023 uh, for a few reasons. One is much of the pain has been priced in in terms of rate hikes for fixed income. If you look at the returns that you can get in fixed income, they look like equity returns at this point. From a total return point of view, 
you know, you're seeing returns of high single digits, even sometimes to the low double digits. So I can get equity-like returns in the bond market with less risk and less volatility than equities. I have to worry less about earnings downgrades and some of the other headwinds that are impacting equities. Uh, within bonds, it's the theme is the same. I'm looking for quality because we're likely to go into a recession. And the, one of the highest quality spaces within bonds is investment-grade bonds and, munis and municipals. So investment-grade bonds, higher quality and taxable fixed income. And then municipal bonds, given the strong fundamentals of the states, which are backing municipal bonds, uh, we see the fundamentals there very strong. And again, as I mentioned, the total returns for some of these fixed income categories are at levels we haven't seen in decades. Interesting. So then do you, you want to own bonds versus bond proxies, which is often what people have talked about in the equity market? Yes? That's right. Because in the equity market, when markets get volatile, people tend to hide in bond proxies. So these are like consumer staple companies, like cereal companies and, you know, personal goods. Um, they tend to get expensive. And if you look at their growth rates, like a Procter & Gamble, you know, growth rate organically is always going to be just a few percentage points. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the question is, how much do you want to pay for that? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think people are overpaying for that right now. Okay, so talking about overpaying, I mean, how should people be thinking about big cap tech, which of course, you know, has has taken quite a beating um, in the last year or so, but that was where most people were hiding for the last couple of years. How are you thinking about that sure. sector? Sure, I, you know, I think we need to be selective um, in big cap tech going forward. Uh, the, these companies are showing to be much more cyclical because of their advertising businesses than people expected. And I think the mistake the companies made was they continued to invest for growth. Uh, they overinvested for growth in, the, in as they were facing a lot of cyclicality. And that's why the business models and the margins are out of whack right now. And you are seeing a lot of discussion at these companies about uh, cost cuts and, and re reductions in workforce, because I don't think that they realized how cyclical their business was going to be in terms of advertising if we hit more of a downturn, which is what you know we're starting to see now. So, you know, that's, Leave some companies you're seeing with more cyclicality, um, some companies with less. So Amazon is a company that we like. They also did, I would say, overinvest in their business in order to control their own logistics. But I would say their top line is a little bit less cyclical as, as people, even post the pandemic, are very comfortable with still continuing to buy their goods on Amazon. So I think they work themselves out of their investment problem faster than some other companies like Facebook. Um, and then, of course, companies like Netflix, that space um, in the media space is getting very crowded on who's going to be the winners and the losers. Um, so given all that competition, I'd like that to shake out a bit. So that was my, my view is, you know, we need to be selective here. I think the winners will be companies like Amazon and Microsoft. Those are safer than some of the other companies in the FANG space like Alphabet and um, Facebook. That's great. And okay. Netflix. Yeah. So um, just talking about inflation for a second. I mean, given that you think inflation is going to sort of come down this year, do you still need an inflation hedge? So I would, um, in my portfolio, the way I'm thinking about it is, well, two things. One is I think there are upside risks to inflation from things like the reopening of China. Um, even though inflation is peaked, I think the slope, people might be a little bit optimistic on the slope of how quickly it might decline. If you look at wages in the employment market, and wages are a big component of inflation, wages aren't really budging. Now, we're mm -hmm. going to get the payroll number this Friday, and we'll see what uh, employment looks like for November. But if, if the employment markets remain pretty strong, it means we're still going to have wage inflation. So one question is, I think we still need to worry about inflation, even though it's declining. The slope of the decline is not clear yet. But I, I mentioned some companies in the material space. I think there's companies, though, that took a lot of pricing last year 
in terms of power, but didn't get the credit for it because their input costs went up very quickly. They're now going to see the benefit of that as they hold on to the pricing and then get some, some lag in the input cost. So these are companies, um, you know, in the packaging space, for example, right? They were taking pricing with their customers and consumer staples, but the high energy costs were still crushing their margins. That makes sense. Okay. So we, the questions are piling up. So I'm going to just kind of go rapid fire through some of these questions here and, and we can kind of tackle different parts of the market that way. Um, so John is asking what your near, near term expectation is for big bank stocks. You know, higher rates don't seem to be reflected in the prices yet, he says. What do you think? Um, you know, bank stocks, um, I would put that in the selective space. We're, we're fairly neutral on them in the sense that you know, the, the fact that rates have gone up pretty quickly, but we know that they're about to moderate and the Fed, you know, will slow their rate increases and even pause. That benefit for bank stocks is moving behind them. Um, I do think, though, overall, financial companies are in a much better shape than they used to be. Um, you know, they pass their regulatory stress test very easily. They have a lot of cash that they can return to shareholders. But, you know, even um, if you look at big banks and brokers, though, they're struggling, though. Their capital markets and investment banking businesses are down 50 plus percent. You see that come out. Companies like Goldman and J.P. Morgan report, and on the upside, their trading business has been uh, the gem for them. But that's a business that usually is not consistent. Right. So you're not getting the consistent piece of the business, and you're getting the downside of capital markets, and that's a lot of the reason why these stocks have not performed as well as one would hope. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, so we we touched on China, but Patricia is asking about the outlook for ex-U.S., especially emerging markets. And whether the dollar really needs to fall before those markets are, become a buy. What do you think? I agree with Patricia. I think the dollar is key for non-US markets. And with the Fed starting to moderate on rate hikes, we are seeing the dollar you know, somewhat be a little less strong than it's been in the past. But I also view with inflation remaining quite high and the Fed continuing a more moderate rate hike increase, I don't think the dollar is going to go straight down. So it still will be somewhat of a headwind for US earnings and non-US markets. Now, going around the world this year, our favorite market has been Latin America, specifically Brazil, because they, have, they are much further ahead in terms of dealing with their inflation problem. Um, you know, I think China's an issue until we see a smooth reopening there. I think that keeps emerging markets as a challenge. Um, and then moving to European markets, you know, because of the unfortunate situation between Russia and Ukraine and their energy issues, I think European markets also with the inflationary problem and less growth than the U.S. has in terms of economic growth. Europe remains a, a challenge. So I can't say, other than valuation, I'm not very optimistic on non-U.S. markets going forward. I need more of a catalyst to go along with that cheap valuation before I get excited. And right. one of those catalysts is from China to the war ending um, to a weaker dollar. That's great. Okay. Um, so kind of on that same trend, um, Atula is asking how deglobalization would um, affect stocks. Obviously, we're seeing a lot of geopolitical tension with China, and there's this conversation about moving um, or diversifying supply chains. So how are you thinking about that broader theme through your portfolio? I think that is a theme that will continue. Um, deglobalization, more, more moving onshore for, for, for many reasons, uh, political a geopolitical issues and also companies wanting to have more control over their supply chains after we saw what happened during and post the pandemic. We talked about semiconductors a bit. That's a space that um, is, you know, is, is one that really is going through deglobalization. And the question is, who will be the winners and the losers? You want to own the companies that are building more onshore, have more control of their supply chain. I mentioned Amazon. They invested heavily in their own logistics so they can control them themselves. I think that was a good investment, even though their top line is slowing, and they're going to come out even stronger than they've been and more dominant than they've been in the past. So look for, look for those companies that are taking more supply, their logistics closer to home. I think they'll be the winners going forward. 
Is that also one of the reasons you're positive on Latin America? Obviously, it's got it's mineral rich, and there's all this talk about critical minerals and and sort of um, reducing dependence on China. Is that one of the reasons that Latin America is looking more attractive? I'd say the big picture on Latin America was mostly to do with the fact that they dealt with Brazil dealt with hyperinflation and raised rates much earlier on the curve than sure. the rest of the world did. So they just got through their issues faster earlier than we did. And secondarily, was its proximity to the rest of the world. Most of the issues were, you know, going on in China and, and its impact on, you know, and Russia and that impact on Europe and the rest of Pan-Asia and Brazil being an emerging market that's far away from there, they actually can start to benefit from it, right? With trade relationships um, and the, and the um, inflation issue uh, moving behind them quicker. That's mm -hmm. why we liked Brazil, particularly within Latin America. So, um, so we've got a lot of questions related to China. So Gabriel is asking, um, shouldn't the geopolitical risk, given China's military situation with Taiwan um, and some of the tensions we're seeing between the U.S. and China, keep um, portfolio exposure to a minimum? I mean, I think there's this conversation going on right now whether um, China is, in, is investable or not. How are you thinking about that? I, I mean, I think that, you know, it's a... It's an interesting topic, and I hear I do hear a lot of discussion about that. Is it investable going forward? And I think it's it's a challenging, right? Because as a fundamental investor, it looks a bit like a black box, right? It's you know it's very politically driven in terms of lockdowns. Uh, those are hard to predict, and how they'll reopen is is something that's very difficult to analyze. And then behind all of that, you know, there has been a sort of economic to social push in China that was happening well before the pandemic, and also it, it was becoming quite heavily regulated, you know, from gaming to the technology companies there, all of those I think give the country and many of the companies there a multiple discount because it's hard to analyze and it's large macro factors that can have a significant impact on any of these companies at any time. So I think all of that makes it challenging. If I, you know, I'm not heavily invested in China myself right now. I, at what I own is US companies which have some exposure to China, which is, you know, is different because, you know, it, I think they're easier to analyze. If I was, you know, looking at China, I do think the healthcare industry there Still could have some legs going forward once we're through this. They had a, a you know, a very um, prominent healthcare industry. It was growing quite quickly. It was on track to maybe even be second biggest in the, you know, almost the size of the U.S. or or second to it over time. And some interesting companies there. But I think it's a challenge. It's it's just it's hard to fundamentally analyze the region right now, which makes it hard for um, me to invest in it. Yeah, I think that's adding to the angst for sure um, that some people are feeling. So um, Neil is asking how much you think India will replace China as a portion of emerging markets. And if you look at the returns for India, they've been very strong over time. And India tends to be an economy um, you know, that is less dependent on the rest of the world. So you know, they're not uh, dealing so much with trade issues. Um, I think it's, it generally is um, I think a good structurally growing region of the world. It's valuations in India that give me pause sometimes because India will have the same issues that emerging markets tend to have over time. And it tends to be an area that gets a premium, especially when people aren't investing in the other large regions of emerging markets like Brazil, I mean, like China um, and even, you know, Russia, which was once, you know, I don't know if you remember the BRIC countries, it was Brazil, Russia, India, China. Um, with issues in Russia and China, people tend to hide again in India and the valuations give me a little bit of pause there, um, which is why you know, we went with, uh, we preferred Brazil as our top call for 2022 and continuing, we still like Brazil. Yeah, got it. Yeah, we just did a round table on India and there was a lot of positive um, commentary. There was a little bit of um, consternation about the valuation in the near term. So that, that seems to resonate with a lot of people. Um, so Ricky is asking um, if you see small and value factors making a comeback in this type of market environment. 
if you look at traditionally what outperforms as you come out of a recession, it would be small in value. So if we do go into a recession next year and it's you know a reasonable recession, I think coming out, it'll be the companies that have operating leverage to economic growth. And those are small companies and value stocks. Now going into a recession, they will not be the ones that outperform because they tend to be more of um, high, perceived as higher risk. So I, I agree there will probably be a time to look at small caps and value stocks. It'll be as we get closer to and see what does that recession look like. However, I would also say don't count out growth stocks because even though growth stocks tend to be not the companies that perform well coming out of a recession, with the NASDAQ down as much as it is, I think there are some very high quality companies there that are worth looking at. Should we kind of dis? I mean, there there's this conversation about whether we should be doing away with sort of growth and value sort of monikers and and looking under the hood. How are you thinking about that? Um, you know, I think that's actually um, something I feel very strongly about. I, I did a um, an a article for the Financial Times about a year and a half ago that I thought that the growth versus value debate should be basically put to bed. Um, I don't think it's about growth versus value. For example, this year, I said the number one thing I was looking for was companies with pricing power. That could have been anything from an energy company to a software company. You know, that's growth and value. Next year, what's recession resilient? It can be anything from a value company, you know, companies that sit inside um, some of the infrastructure stuff we talked about. With the dividend growers, I can give you, you know, a growth stock and a value stock that both look great because they have strong dividends um, and resilient balance sheets. So, I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't love the discussion of growth versus value. I think it's more nuanced than that. And that's just a much too simple way to look at it. Yeah. So I have a couple bond oriented questions and you can kind of um, sidestep them if you need. But um, so Gregory's asking, <laughs> um, his wife has had a windfall. Um, he would you know, like to put the money into stocks, but she's not so into risk. Um, he's asking if short term treasuries would be a good option or if you would have any other recommendation. And I can sort of pivot that conversation or that question and ask you sort of if you have some money to put to work, where do you think is the best spot to put it um, going into this year? Well, it always depends on your timeline. So what's your horizon for investing? I mean, the returns on short-term treasuries is nothing to sneeze at. When you can generate, you know, a few percentage point returns from basically cash, I don't think it's anything to laugh at. Um, I think the issue is that it's not beating the real rate of inflation. It's not beating inflation. So that's one thing, right? So eventually that's sort of eating away at your money. Um, if your, your time horizon is short, I think it's a, a fine investment. Um, longer time horizon, you know, we talked about investment grade bonds, municipals. The total return on those um, it are returns that we haven't seen in decades. So entering those at, at this time, I think, could give you a very attractive 12-month or more return. Um, and within equities, too, I think if you get into more resilient parts of equities, um, we haven't you know, talked about uh, real assets. That's another area. If you can get access to those, I think there's some interesting areas of real assets that are interesting, like private credit and even farmland. Um, but you know, I think the issue with treasuries will be that over time, because of the rate of inflation, it cannot, it's not it's not a return that's going to beat inflation. So it will eat away at your, your overall net worth. Hmm, yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, so a couple more and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you go. So one of the, the questions we have here is given the potential volatility that can emerge from the geopolitical situation, whether it's the war in Ukraine or, or the US-China tensions, um, are there any hedges that people should be thinking about in their portfolios? You know, I think the issue with hedges is that they become very expensive once the issue is known. So, you know, you're always trying to hedge for something before it happens. Um, you know, so I think that's, it makes it challenging. I don't, I don't use a lot of them myself, but 
you know, if the market starts to look very expensive one area in one area, you know, you could think about a hedge. But the, you know, the issue is once the news is out, it's kind of tough to hedge for it because the hedge costs too much. Yep. Yep. Um, so I think that's that's kind of a challenge. And I, you know, I can't say that I've really come up with a great solution for it, other than um, you know, trying to hedge for for things where they just look expensive or cheap. But the sort of you know, there's no news out that would potentially move that sector or asset class. Uh, you know, that's out there and known by the public yet. Mm -hmm. Okay, two more bond-related questions. Richard is asking if you like busted convertible bonds as a sector. Um, well, I, 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 you know, busted. I, I, is it? Are we talking about like higher yielding, sort of yeah. low quality yeah. companies? Is that sure? Let's say that that's what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I would say generally we're trying to move up the quality spectrum at this point. Um, high yield is an area, though, that uh, I, if you talking about high yield, though, um, that's an area that is higher quality than it has been in the past. Um, it has high exposure to energy, which is a sector, as we said, uh, we think it has a lot of strong fundamentals going forward. So I might look more at high yield um, and an area like that, which I think is higher quality. But my theme for across the board right now is, is because of the potential recession coming, well, yeah. we need to stay on the right side of quality. Yeah, that's a great that's a great way to put it. Amy had asked about high yield bonds, so you answered that one. Um, so she also asked if whether you would recommend laddering corporate bonds at this juncture. Um, you know, I think it depends again. What is your time horizon? Um, it can work, but probably the conversation is a little bit more nuanced in terms of how we would think about it. Um, you know, just bigger picture on duration in general, though. Um, we are moving more uh, towards neutral and away from short duration. This is part of our theme of uh, as interest rate hikes are starting to peak and a lot of the pain is priced into bonds. You don't need to be as conservative as may maybe you've been throughout 2022. Take a little bit more duration in your bond portfolio um, going forward as I, we think it's fine to take on a little bit more risk when it comes to fixed income. Perfect. You just answered Michael's question about bond duration. So thank you for that. Um, so I guess, you know, sure. if you're thinking about your outlook, what what could kind of throw it astray? Like, what are some of the, the risks out there to, to your sort of base case? Well, I think, you know, one thing when I think at the, at the, you know, coming into December of every year and we talk about the risk, one thing I've noticed for the past few years, a lot of the risks that everyone is thinking about end up being nothing like the year in front of you. So 2019, we're looking at risk and then a pandemic comes out. You know, going into post-pandemic, we're talking about risk and inflation. And then this year, of course, very significant, aggressive Fed rate hikes that were probably not in most people's expectations when the year started. So what are the, you know, known risks for 2023? I think, you know, it's, it's around inflation and the Fed. Uh, inflation in terms of, you know, we're seeing it peak. Will it moderate and, and uh, decline as significantly as, as the markets would hope? You know, the Fed, we're all expecting them to, to slow the pace of Fed rate hikes maybe even pause by the second quarter or second half of 2023. W will that happen if not? You know, what if we get in a, a situation that's more stagflationary, inflation remains high, we hit a recession, Fed has to keep increasing interest rates. Obviously, that's a very bare case scenario. Um, we're, I think most investors are expecting earnings to significantly um, be, be quite a bit lower in 2023 than what consensus is expecting right now. Will that happen? So those are the risks, I think, around recession, the Fed, and inflation, and what, are that, what does that mean for the market? And then, of course, I have to leave it out there. You know, what are these unknown risks that we've um, walked into, you know, for uh, two of the last three years, at least, um, that we don't see today as we sit here you know, at the end of November going into 2023? Yeah, I think that we all need to be thinking about the unknown a lot more, given what we've gone through. Um, so kind of on that same um, topic, what are some of the indicators that you're paying more attention to, especially on, on things like inflation? 
um, and even the health of the economy, because things are different post-pandemic, right? There's a lot of sort of, um, I don't know if it's noise, but there are a lot of other types of disruptions that are out there. So what are you looking at in terms of gauges that perhaps you did not look at the last time we were in this economic situation? Sure. Um, I mean, inflation obviously being something that's very different this cycle yeah. than we've seen for many of the past cycles. Core inflation is the most important. So I watch certain things like wage inflation, the shift in spendings. I think we all heard about that from you know goods to services, which finally we've seen. Uh, people are spending less on goods. I think even the Amazon CEO said maybe we should rethink some of the goods that we might buy. Um, so the pieces of core inflation that, that are important. Um, employment markets, I think, are, are very key. Uh, it's one of the uh, I'd say, you know, legs of the stool that's holding up this economy can, in the employment market, continue to hold up as we deal with these higher interest rates. Um, closely watching manufacturing data. There's manufacturing data that comes out called, uh, you know, around PMIs and ISM manufacturing data. A lot of that has now been moving towards economic contractionary territory. If it all dips fairly uh, uh, into that territory, that's another sign of a, of a recession. The consumer is important going forward. The consumer has interestingly continued to spend throughout all of these issues. So when you see consumer confidence numbers that look negative, oftentimes you see a consumer who says, I'm not very confident, but then they keep spending. Yeah. But the interesting thing is they've been dipping into their savings in order to spend for the last few months. And how long can the consumer continue to do that before they finally pull that spending? I think these are all, and then earnings, we talked about 2023 earnings. I think they're too high. Yeah, no, that, that's, and I love the consumer point because I think that's a, that's something that people have not necessarily noticed that they are sort of dipping into their savings account. So the last question I'm going to ask you about is housing and real estate. Um, we're also seeing sort of the housing market lose steam. I mean, how are you thinking about that and, and the ripples through from that? I, you know, I think housing market has showed signs of cracks, um, you know, and signs of peaking because of the increase in mortgage rates. Um, but I also think housing stocks have priced a lot of that in. If you look at public housing, public equities, uh, otherwise known as REITs, I think REITs look pretty attractive. In most cycles, actually, REITs tend to be quite resilient. They've been very poor performers this year. I think REITs and, and uh, public equity in terms of real estate is interesting. Um, but in private real estate, I would go debt over credit. I think the debt holders in private real estate are better positioned um, than the uh, equity holders. I'm sorry, I meant debt over equity than the uh, you know kind of private uh, credit and equity holders within um, real estate. Great. Well, that's all the time we have for today, Sarah. You, you tackled almost all of our questions. Thank you so much for that. Thank you to the audience for tuning in. We hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. Barron's Deputy Editor Ben Levinson, Senior Writer Nicholas Jasinski, and Christopher Harvey, Head of Equity Strategy at Wells Fargo Securities, will discuss the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thank you for listening. Be well. Have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.